welcome back to a brand new episode of Horror 4H. I know! It has been... I don't actually know how long it's been since the last episode. I have been holed up in a dark room being tortured slowly. Every strand of sanity I have been pulled apart little by little. The worst of the worst. The darkest of the dark. The evilest of the evil. The most reviled, horrendous, and rapscallious of villains ever conceived of delving deep into my psyche to destroy what precious little will to live I have left. But enough about therapy. Time to jump back into the world of absolutely god-awful horror movies. The kind of movies that make you realize that not only does God exist, but that he hates you. Specifically. The kind of movies that made you realize that if they can get made, then you can do anything you're putting off. Because if someone, somewhere bankrolled these monstrosities, then you can get out of bed and do the dishes and someone should sing your praises for doing it, goddammit. What I have in store for you tonight is a nightmare. Not like a, oh god, I'm being chased by a murderer or a zombie kind of nightmare. More like a, I pooped in a dream and woke up and I shit the bed kind of nightmare. Except, no, wait, that actually, that actually is scary and this movie isn't. Yeah. But without further ado, sit back. Relax, and enjoy bad horror through someone else's eyes. The Carpenter, 1989. This movie is so terrible that the entire Wikipedia entry for its cast and crew had only three links that you could click on. So, you know, one of whom was the director, another was actor Ron Lee. Lee, Leah, Lee, I don't know how to pronounce that, so that bodes well. Uh, and of course, Wings Hauser! And if you're like me, you have no idea who Wings Hauser is. Just kidding. He was in another awful horror movie called Mutant that the boys over on Rift Tracks did. And that's literally the only thing I know his name from. Though I do remember him being in an episode of House as a father who hates his son because the kid couldn't give the mother slash wife a kidney because the kid has AIDS. And yet the most memorable thing about the episode is that House gets the rat Steve McQueen. So yes, everyone, that Wingshauser is in this movie. Alright. So the opening sounds like the intro to Crazy Train, but if it had the hiccups complete with what sounds like a table saw revving up, and, and it was, okay. So close-up shot on said table saw, cutting through a very thin piece of wood that I'm halfway sure I could cut with a good steak knife, which I guess is supposed to be scary? Oh, and he lifted the table saw off the table, which clearly signifies the rise to innocence of the, I'm, ju I'm just shitting you, they, they just, they needed an intro with a name like The Carpenter. They kind of painted themselves into a corner, didn't they? Get it? Painted themselves? Because carpenters work on houses and painting is... I'm fucking hilarious, people! So at least the credits are in, are red against a black background, which is kind of spooky. Okay, and this music, which has become an assault on my ears and gone from hiccuping crazy train to whatever that instrument is where you drag something across the rim of a bowl, whatever that is, but if you were doing it on a bad acid trip and someone was right next to your ears and... That's... That's, that's what the music is now. It's an original score composed by Pierre Bundock for Alert Music. Clearly well-named because this music would definitely keep you alert. Or force you into suicide. Or both. Probably both. Written by Doug Taylor, which is really saying something. I don't know who Doug Taylor is. I'm just really surprised this movie was actually written by someone. An opening shot is of a woman who is clearly a vampire. I mean, she's so pale, she would hurt to look at during the day, and her lipstick is bright red, and her eyes are sunken and dark, and oh, my my bad, she's not a vampire. She's a housewife staring at a wall. Easy mistake to make. But now she's on the bed, staring at the ceiling, so we've got character growth aplenty already. She's got a suit out and placed it on the bed, and I'm not sure if she's going to, like, lay on it. Maybe she lost her husband and she's lonely. Nope, she's cutting it up. Okay, so he cheated, didn't he? You know what? Good for you, honey. Cut those suits. Okay, but don't take this long cutting the suits. We've been meticulously cutting the same suit for almost a full minute now. Oh, okay, and here comes Hubby with a pair of sunglasses hanging out of his mouth because people totally do that. Clearly, this man is David Schwimmer's father. And I just checked, and he isn't. But he could be. They exchange a pleasant greeting, followed by him asking her if it was a rough day. Such comedy already! Clearly, Doug Taylor is a master of his craft. And smash cut to a close-up of a blue fan, which your high school English teacher would want you to explain if this were a short story. Sometimes, kids, the fan is just blue. 
And we are also treated to a lovely, insane, rambling poem from a woman who is probably the only genuine scare we'll get in this movie, but she ruins it quickly by, at the end of it, just sticking her tongue out. Like, I guarantee you the director was like, hey, be crazy. Uh, no, 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 crazier than that. No, like, really crazy, like, make a funny face crazy. Woo, perfect! And pan over to reveal the wife and her clearly devoted husband, whose second line of the film is, doesn't she ever shut up? Obviously, this man cares deeply about women, and especially his wife, who he has committed. Don't worry, audience. He wants to see about getting her a private room. But she can't go home yet because, you know, he can't afford the suits. <laughs> he reaches out to stroke her cheek after a cheeky remark. See what I did there? I'm a comedic genius, much like Doug Taylor. And she recoils, which shows their marriage is a happy and healthy one. The nurse brings her medication, which apparently will knock her out in five minutes, but he graciously is guilted into staying until they do. She even apologizes for the suits. But hey, folks, if you cut up a suit, you have to go to a mental institution. It's like cutting off a mattress tag. Society just can't let that shit slide. It would be chaos! Imagine if you cut up a single piece of clothing. There'd be riots in the street. It would rain up. Snow would be hot. Absolute insanity! Thankfully, though, this woman was put away for cutting up a suit, so we all know this movie takes place in the real world. And while she's in the mental institution, we're treated to a montage. She's selling their house because the best time to make major life decisions with lifelong lasting financial repercussions to help keep your wife sane is when you've just committed her. Okay. A new woman grabs her out in the yard and shakes her while screaming, She's crazy! And the orderlies come to break up the not-quite fight, while the main character just makes funny faces at her, which I guess shows that she's crazy or, or perhaps mocking a five-year-old either way clearly this woman belongs in a mental institution and that woman saying our main character is crazy echoes in the background repeating she's crazy crazy i tell you this woman is insane and then information that she gets to leave in a few days with a full 30 seconds of people saying, you're free, and then ends with a dream of the doctor cutting off her restraints with a chainsaw for good measure, because have we established yet that this woman is crazy? And now her doctor is telling her to stay at home. Relax, get more relaxed. Relax, goddammit, why aren't you relaxed, you insane woman? And that she should get off her feet, and then get on her feet. Well, which is it? You're supposed to get on her feet or stay relaxed. Also, take tranquilizers if you need sleep. Here's just here's just a bunch of tranquilizers. Just take them. Just here's tranquilizers. Tranquilizers taste good. Take them. It'll be fine. I don't want to see here again. You'd have to be crazy to come to a place like this. <laughs> well, folks, I should stop writing this podcast right now. I should just go off myself because God knows I will never be such an accomplished writer as Doug Taylor. This script was obviously the ultimate achievement in all of writing. Fuck off, James Joyce. Doug Taylor exists. Fun fact. The movie most well-known that Doug Taylor wrote was not The Carpenter. It was, in fact, Splice. So maybe this was the penultimate piece, given that that movie was about scientists creating a new organism that they basically referred to as the dollar, and then fucking it. Yep, that's the mind we're dealing with here with The Carpenter. And we're at the new house! where major construction is being done. Because nothing says relaxing like constant hammering, saw noises, and lots of strangers around. And to further the great financial decision-making her husband did without her, one of the first things she says about the new house, other than it's beautiful, a few times, is, how can we pay for all this? And a five-year-old synthesizer piece plays as we see her walking towards the house, and the house, and her walking towards the house, back to the house, and back to her walking towards the house, Back to the house, and back to her walking up to the house, and now the house, and her walking up to the house at the same time. Wow! The editor must have just discovered how to do the fade cut and got Trigger happy with it. Like a kid with a new toy on Christmas, except with a much bigger paycheck. Oh, and there's a big bang, which makes her jump, proving she's totally crazy because only crazy people are startled by startling things. This woman is crazy. And now, we are treated to another montage of her pulling all the covers off of the furniture and moving stuff around, including dragging a chandelier across the room. Like, they're, they're really focusing on her moving the chandelier. Like, if the chandelier doesn't fall and kill someone, then this is a waste of a scene. Check off chandelier, everyone. Also, I'm not sure how long this montage takes up in movie time, but she's in a different outfit in every single shot of it. 
So, I'm gonna guess a few days, but I'm really hoping it's the same day, and she's just sitting around like, I've got my taking off covers furniture outfit on, I've got my moving a chandelier outfit over there, my longingly staring out a window outfit, which coincidentally is also my staring out the window at, an, at a hornet's net outfit, because that also happens, and it's so versatile, but I guarantee you it doesn't fucking have pockets, because women are screwed by society. But back to the hornet's nest, because it has to mean something, and we're panning away with no acknowledgement, but we pan to the work crew, and after some incredibly well-written dialogue with lots of subtext, and I'm just fucking with you, it was straight-up exposition, so we know they're lazy. So let's recap. <clears throat> I'm going to leave that clearing throat noise in there, because it sounded like I did it on purpose, even though I didn't. Shit, now you know that. Shitty husband, insane wife, lazy work crew, cool, you're all caught up in this movie now. And time for bed. So, Hubby suggests she takes tranquilizers, which he says are just like sleeping pills. Yeah, they're they're tranquilizers. They're... Anyways, uh, here, have dinner. It's just like a meal, right? Have lunch. It's also like a meal. You see what I'm doing there? Okay. She says no, because she's tired enough and doesn't need them, because it's nice and quiet. But he's going to take his. Wait, he has... He has tranquilizers, too? Okay, ten to one, he didn't... He didn't need to be committed first to get them. Like, I bet he just went to the doctor and went, I'm having trouble sleeping. But okay, we know he sleeps like a log, so he's not going to wake up when the inevitable happens. And there it is. Construction noises at night. She wakes up, though. Her name is Alice, by the way. And hubby is Martin. And the odds I'll remember either of their names are very low, though. You have to care about characters to remember their names. So she's getting up to go investigate the noises, some of which overlap and are impossible to be made by only one person, even though we're about to find out that they're only being made by one person. But it's going to take a while to find that out, because first she has to walk through a dark house and build tension, which may happen if the music wasn't like a classical peppy march that just can't get started. Yeah. A close-up on her feet walking down the stairs that would make Quentin Tarantino's night, and finally we see her find the source of the noise. Why, it's Wings Hauser, at long last! She rightly questions why he's working so late, because traditionally speaking, the work crew is more than one guy, and it isn't being done in the basement in the middle of the night. But he says, job ain't done till it's done, and then immediately pulls out a nail gun and shoots a mouse. I'm not kidding. He literally just says some folksy bullshit, and then nail guns a mouse. That was, like, next to her, by the way. So in her first two seconds of meeting this strange man that she hasn't seen before in her house, he dodges a question and shoots a nail gun in her general direction. I smell a love interest. Or bullshit. Probably both. <sighs> she seems mildly horrified, which is an appropriate response, especially since the next thing out of his mouth is that he'd prefer to use a hammer, but these things rip the hell out of the rats, followed by a toothy grin. That's a phrase I don't get to use often enough, toothy grin, not rip the hell out of the rats. Granted, I, I don't get to use that one often either, but I'm not bothered that I don't get to use that one often. She questions whether the work has to be done right then, and he assures her that it does, so of course she goes back upstairs, wakes her husband, has him call the police, because there's clearly an insane man in their basement pretending to work on the house, when in reality it's a potential homicidal maniac who takes great delight in nail-gunning small animals. Ha <laughs> ha! Just kidding! She apologizes for interrupting him, and then he creepily pulls out a pipe, and the camera moves to a totally dark area of the basement, so that then him being in that dark area of the basement, lighting up the pipe, Seems dramatic, while there's some whistling in the background that almost makes it seem like it's supposed to be him, which would be impressive, because lighting and smoking a pipe while whistling seems hard, but it isn't him, so I don't know where I was going with this, but that's fine, because something tells me that I gotta imagine Doug Taylor said that constantly while writing this movie. You know what this movie needs, and if you said an exciting discussion about wallpaper buying, then wow, you are boring as hell, and also clairvoyant because you're right. She says she's thinking of going shopping to buy some wallpaper, and of course, this being a new home, he says, yeah, that makes sense, and it'd be good for you to get out of the house a little bit and do something to take your mind off of cutting up all my suits. Did you believe me when I said that? Because if you did, then it proves that I'm acting better than all of the people in this movie, because of course he didn't say that. He said, we'll talk about wallpaper later. What's your big hurry? Dude, she brought it up once in a very monotone voice. Calm down, Martin. He then says they'll have to talk about it another time and that he's late, even though literally right before that, he was very nonchalantly reading the paper and sipping coffee. 
You know what? I will say this for the acting. I 100% believe that these two people genuinely do not love each other, so nice work. All this among a cacophony of construction noises happening in the background, which I have to reiterate is perfect for rest and relaxation because remember, this woman is totally insane. I mean, she cut up a suit. A suit! With a pair of scissors! I have no idea how that scream is going to sound until I do the editing and I'm not re-recording it. So, let's hope it was funny. And terrible. I hope it was terribly funny. She goes looking for the rat killer and can't find him and wanders outside where we get to see some of the workers who are very upset that the basement is almost finished and blame scabs, or possibly students. You remember that rash of students doing random acts of construction in the 80s, right? Damn kids back then. Ugh. And quick cut to the husband telling his wife in literally one of the most deadpan manners that he's going to be late because of meetings. And when I say deadpan, I mean it. You know that now they're going to eat me. Oh my god. Scream from Troll 2. Yet yeah, that shit is Oscar worthy compared to what I just heard. And she turns around after hanging up the phone to work on the meal she was cooking, and one of her construction workers jumps down from scaffolding to try to commiserate with her and hit on her and try to set up a date with the married woman whose house he's working on. And I want to address something here. One, what the fuck is up with construction workers just leaning through open windows to talk with wives? Because this is a theme I've seen a few times in movies from the 70s and 80s. Poltergeist comes to mind. Was this just common back then? I want to address two things, actually. I know the answer to this, but do guys regularly just hit on married women so blatantly? Of course they do, men are pigs, but like, really? Come on. I, you know what? I want to address three things here. The most important of is, how the fuck did he know she's going to be alone tonight? She's barely managed anything above the volume of a whisper in every scene, and literally he, he jumped down from a story above her while being outside with shitloads of construction noises happening. This guy has better hearing than Daredevil. Anyways, she refuses and walks away, and so of course he looks exasperated and annoyed. How dare this married woman not accept his advances, even though she doesn't know his name or anything about him other than he's a construction worker who hits on married women. She should be throwing herself at him. And cut to Hubby being a university professor, apparently, and talking about the masculinity of Paul Bunyan. And along with the acting that proves him and his wife don't love each other, I see another fine piece of acting wherein one of the students just gets up and leaves mid-sentence. Because I, too, would walk out of an... Armchair psychiatrist sounds far too good for this guy, so we're gonna go with footstool psychiatrist, maybe. I don't know, that feels demeaning to footstools. And he even touches on the babe, the big blue ox, and says, quote, unquote, a super animal with obvious male implications. Yes, the male animal has male implications. Clearly, dear audience, Babe, the big blue ox, is just a stand-in for a gigantic cock. As he begins to talk about how modern technology was attacking Paul's version of masculinity, the bell rings, because we all remember being in college when the bell rang. Not high school, college. At least I really fucking hope this is college, because the scene cuts to him boinking one of his students. And yes, I said boinking, because honestly, that's what they're doing. They're literally just rolling around under a blanket, and he's hitting the mattress over and over like it's fucking Panto. And I have a feeling that this is the most emotion we're going to see out of this man for the entire film. But let's cut to a bar now where the workers are, and an honestly surprising talk about safe sex. Like, not even kidding. One guy is talking to the others about a girl he's going to sleep with who said no condom, no sex, and he says, unironically, that's classy. And you know what? It is. Practice safe sex, kids. I mean, not kids. No, like, kids don't have sex. I just usually refer to anyone younger than me as a kid, and at some point in the last few decades, I happen to get old as fuck. So safe sex, everyone who is old enough to be consenting to sex. Yay. And that guy who leaned in the window starts talking about how if you want class, you want that wife, and how she's so classy that he has a date with her tonight. No husband around. 
I mean, if cheating on your spouse doesn't scream classy, everyone, I don't know what does. Maybe this is why I'm single. I'm not classy. I haven't cheated on a spouse even once. Damn, I knew there was something wrong with me. <sighs> he says he's off to see her because he's feeling sensitive. Because nothing screams sensitivity like bragging to a bunch of other drunk guys that you're going to go fuck someone else's classy wife. And a brilliant zoom in to some beer staying lit as the rest of the scene fades, and the lit part becomes the moon, complete with the howl. A howl? Oh, is this gonna turn into a werewolf movie? Oh, please, God, let this turn into a werewolf movie. I imagine it after, like, 20-something minutes of boring bullshit with no real acting whatsoever. Like, imagine if after all that, suddenly, boom, werewolf! It wouldn't make any sense, but it'd be awesome! But sadly... No werewolves show up, or at least not on camera. I'm going to imagine the howl we heard, though, was a werewolf off doing werewolf stuff, and the cameraman just didn't follow. So, worker man knocks on the door after chugging a beer, and wifey just answers it without even asking who is it, despite it being very obviously very late. He asks if he can come in while coming in, and to her credit, she actually acts offended and shocked and says no, while he's holding a half-empty cheap wine bottle. This movie likes to hammer in points, so let's recap. She needs rest and relaxation, she is insane, hubby is completely devoid of emotion, and this guy is drunk. Also, killing rats with hammers are fun. And at this point, he's pinned her up against a wall while saying things like, we've got a lot in common. Do you read? I don't, but I like you. Take note, fellas. This is how you win over a woman. He's now switched to, I see you, your life is pretty good, busy, active, challenging. Has he been watching a different movie than us? He's literally just talking over her, which I can't tell if he did on purpose or if, because it was in the script. Because this was just written so naturally by Doug Taylor. It's brilliant. And now he's on top of her. We went from uninvited house guest to sexual assault in less than two full minutes. Even though she said no and to leave and asked what he's doing several times, he didn't hear any of that. He does hear the hammering coming from the next room. Clearly, a deep insight into the psyche of a man on how men never listen to women, but will listen to other men. And the hammering must be another man, because hammers, much like big blue bulls, are signifiers of gigantic cocks. Or something like that. I don't know, because I don't possess the keen writing insights of Doug Taylor. He gets mad at her because he believes it's the scab students. Again, remember how students stole all of the good construction job in the 80s? We hear a table saw, and then guess who shows up? That's right, Wingshauser, with the table saw. He cleverly says the guy's going to have to learn to keep his hands to himself, which I'm assuming means he's about to give him a very well-thought-out lesson on respecting women. And nope, sorry, he's just using the table saw to cut the guy's arms off. Now, you would assume that this would elicit screaming, backing away, movement, and or noise of any sort. And you would be wrong, you dumb fucking idiot. The man just stands there and looks on, dumbfounded, and totally without arms. And not with his arms inside his shirt moving around, obviously, at all. Definitely not that. He's also still standing there, not saying anything, while Wings tells her to get some rest and that he'll manage. And when I say standing there, I, I mean right here we have found the inspiration for every Mortal Kombat character awaiting a fatality, okay? Imagine that, and you have this down perfect. Does she say or do anything here? Nope! Why would she? Totally normal stuff happening. She just walks upstairs and goes to bed while Wings dismembers and hides the body. Or does he? Maybe she's imagining this. After all, remember, she's insane! But at least we get to our first death in the horror movie. Right, folks? Only took... Around 25 minutes in. <laughs> At this rate, we'll be up to three, maybe even four corpses by the end. Imagine. Hubby gets home and starts sniffing around. No, like, literally, like... <laughs> and finds a single drop of... I'm sorry, that probably sounded terrible. I'm gonna hear that back in the edit. I'm gonna be like, oh god, why did I subject them to that? But I want you to know how bad I feel about it, so I'm leaving this in. And he finds a single drop of blood that should be dried, but isn't. And also isn't red temper paint. 100%. But he sees the bottle of wine and assumes it's that. He appears very upset at the prospect of his wife drinking and or having anyone else around while he was out cheating on her all night. I mean, she doesn't have any class, does she? Wait, no, hold on, that is class. Self-respect? No, he can't ask for that while also being in this movie. Maybe he's just upset he's in the movie in the first place? We're gonna go with that one. Next morning, and she wakes up 
and were treated to their emotion-filled conversations that show how loving of a relationship they have with each other. He tells her not to drink with her medication, which she says she's not taking. He says multiple times he thinks she should, and it would help with her dreams, which she says are fine, and thankfully she seems to have grown a big old spine overnight and quips that he has a lot to say about what she should and shouldn't do. Hell yeah, give it to him. Get some scissors and find another one of his suits. And she starts looking around downstairs where the very boring murder took place to see if she can find any sign of it. Which is one of the smartest things she's done in this movie. What happened? She went from a boring person number one in this movie to intelligent protagonist. Sure, she's not emoting, but you know, hey, one step at a time. If she keeps up this character growth, this movie may be watchable, but let's hope not. Good movies don't make for entertaining riffs. If these movies were well done, I'd be out of a job. This isn't even technically a job. I'd be out of a hobby. She says she wants to clean the whole house, and she says that'll take days. I mean, what else is she going to do? You won't let her go into town shopping. You won't let her drink. You won't let her cut up your suits. But his take be damned. A cleaning montage ensues. And yet again in this movie, when a montage happens, every single scene, she's wearing different clothes. Is this designed to show that it happens over numerous days? That she's just actively changing clothes every couple hours to help show that she's totally insane? Who knows? Other than Doug Taylor, of course. And even though the montage ended with it becoming dark outside, we cut to a high noon shot of the town where she's visiting Mort's Empire of Paint. And she's in a completely new outfit. One that would make Marissa Tomei's character and my cousin Vinny, like, super jealous. Like, wait, no, hold on. I can make a better reference than that. Her outfit would make literally any Debbie Mazar character scream with happiness. There we go. That's a solid reference. Come on, admit that. And if you don't know who that is, go Google her. And there's who I'm assuming is Mort of Mort's Paint Empire, smoking and playing with drumsticks at his counter, and sporting a John Waters mustache if it was filled in slightly with a magic marker. Okay, I'm nailing these all of a sudden. Don't get too used to these uh, good solid burns, though, everyone. This is my first time back at the mic in a while, so just be glad you're getting any quality singers, okay? She's interviewing for a job, and while she has no retail experience, she says she's very good with people. And I want to see proof of that, to be honest. Granted, we haven't seen her interact with people, because I don't really consider any of the other characters she's interacted with so far to be what I would call people. No chemistry education, but she's got a liberal arts degree, which... He is visibly upset about. Jeez, even back then liberal arts got shit on. I mean, I went to school for liberal arts, psychology, and look at me now. Wait. Fuck. Maybe he's got a point. So far, he's emoting about as much as her husband. I'm sensing the direction for most of these scenes in the movie was... You know how much wood emotes? Like, literal wood? That's too much. So, think of that dialed down just a bit. Wait, she... She just emoted by explaining she spent a few weeks in a mental hospital and she sees things that aren't really there, but that it won't interfere with her job at all. And this is how you know the world is different now, because literally anything she said would mean she doesn't get a call back in today's world. But after disclosing that, he says, Fine, I think you'll do. When can you start? It really was that easy to get a job back then, folks. And back to hubby arguing with the foreman about no one doing work and... They're having labor problems, and their window guy disappeared. What do you mean, disappeared? What do you think he means, disappeared? It means they don't know where he is. How the hell did this guy become a university professor? Speaking of how stupid this university professor is, he says, so there's not going to be windows. No, there's just going to be a delay. So you can lose one guy and still get things done for the same price? So then lose those two guys who aren't actively working right now. Same price. Dude, you should be saying if there's going to be delays, that means you pay less. How the fuck did you get a degree and be able to teach if your logic leaps are, let's fire more people to make everything take longer, and I'll still pay full price for it? And your wife was the one in an insane asylum? Are you kidding me? And cut back to the paint empire where we meet wife's sister, who has never been mentioned before. But talking to sisters doesn't sell paint, and we're here to sell paint. Psst! There's literally no one else in the store. Okay, at least some things in the workplace haven't changed. Bosses do love to just stand around to tell you to stop standing around. Oh hey, sis is an interior designer who can get business for Mort, so it's fine to just stand around and talk to her. Yay, that was absolutely fortuitous and not shoehorned at all. And cut to hubby asleep by the fireplace while she's painting a white wall even more white, I guess. Is this the same day? Who knows? But it's night 
And now we hear drilling, so of course that means the nail-gunning, table-saw, arm-cutting mystery murderer is back. And so, of course, she's smiling because he's somehow the most positive male in her entire life. She checks her appearance in the mirror before going outside because, ladies, this is important. If someone uses a table saw to cut off someone's arms in front of you, you better look pretty for them. That's finishing school 101 stuff. She sits on a little porch swing that's about 200 feet from the porch. And moving past that, they talk about how hard he works and he doesn't take a break even though we've only seen him a few times and how that hard work is like music. You can't lose your momentum, which tells me sadly, these people have never listened to EDM. The drop is the best damn part. You have to lose momentum for a second or else it all goes to shit. But regardless, you don't stop till the job's done. During their back and forth, every single time she says something and it cuts to her, and then back to him, he's doing something different. Cutting a piece of wood, breaking stones, cutting drywall, hammering nails, sanding a door frame. Literally every few seconds, it's something new. This is like watching a Bugs Bunny bit on Bad Acid with Wings Hauser as Bugs Bunny. Honestly, folks, I'm sad I'm sober watching this. If I was high off my ass, this would actually be scary instead of hilariously bad. Cut back to her bragging she has a job, and off-camera we hear sawing, hammering, a table saw, and more. All at the same time. And every one of those switches so far, it was literally humanly impossible to do them. So I'm going to stick with this guy being a live-action cartoon character for now. And next morning a bunch of workers arrive, and stuff is done when it shouldn't be. And now the foreman fires two of the guys he was told to, while completely ignoring the fact that a huge amount of work is done when it wasn't yesterday. The foreman cares about his job as about as much as hubby cares about his wife. Also, why are you firing two guys when they show up for work instead of when they left the night before? And also, what sort of horrible movie is this that these are the things I have to focus on? And before they get fired, one of the very white men make a joke at the expense of very not-white people. So if you felt bad about him getting fired, <laughs> don't. Though the other guy does tell him to knock it off, so hey, pretty progressive for an 80s movie. Of course, then he physically attacks the guy who fired him, so we're, we're, we're getting shades of people. A true slice of life, or something like that. I don't know, I have a feeling I'm putting more thought into this than anyone else did. And wife finds a rocking chair with a bow on it. He can hammer, saw, and do ten other things at once, so Mystery Murder Man can clearly finish an entire rocking chair in one night, while he also made so much progress on the front of the house that it was a plot point. And it totally doesn't make me wonder where the fuck he got a red bow from at all. Oh, hell yeah. I thought they were using a chainsaw outside while she sat in, a, in the rocking chair, but it turns out it was a motorcycle. And who is on that motorcycle? Well, what character was missing from this story, folks? That's right, stereotypical, annoying, redneck sheriff with ridiculous mannerisms. And if you got that, give yourself five points. And remember, those points are not worth any monetary value, nor even my respect, but simply exist as a comedic device to provide, hopefully at least, mild amusement, free of charge, a service likely not limited to, and yet still provided by Horror4H. Oh, and he has a delightful name. You know it has to be, because it's one of the only names I've actually mentioned and will remember. Johnny Johnston. But you can call him JJ. If he doesn't mention them Duke boys, then this whole thing is gonna feel off. This man is constantly chewing something. I can't even tell if there's anything in his mouth, because honestly, if he's chewing on gum, then his jaws must be, like, super-powered. He's been on screen less than a few minutes, and I've seen more of the inside of his mouth than I've seen of plot. And on top of that jaw, he also has the power of exposition. With no warning or incentive to bring it up, he starts to talk about the history of the house. Because, of course, the house has a history. Funny kind of story, which tells me that this story will be anything but funny. But go on, Sheriff JJ! While telling us about how this guy named Ed bought the land and started building a house, he was a good carpenter, he says that the man had a wild temper and then slaps the table as hard as he can with literally no mention of it, no warning, no I gotta fly or anything like that. Just apparently in sheriff school they taught JJ to punctuate stories with random fits of violence, which is very good for the crazy woman who is trying to get some rest and relaxation. Did we mention she's crazy? Anyways, something something American policing something something. 
Ed took out all sorts of loans to build his house and wouldn't let anyone else work on it, just himself. Oh, my sweet baby Christ. The man actually had gum in his mouth. I know this because he took it out to chew on a donut in the exact same way he's been chewing gum. And if that sounds disgusting, it's because it is. I will now demonstrate him chewing gum and a jelly donut. I can't actually do it. I can't do it without some I don't even know if I could do it with something in my mouth. This guy is amazing. Apparently, Ed didn't just work while he built the house, and so a year later, he's still building, and the banks and people want their money back. Something, something, American economy, something, something. Apparently, Ed, quote-unquote, started killing repo men. But, I mean, hell, they're just repo men. It isn't an average Tuesday if a few repo men don't turn up murdered, right? And he killed them in the most disgusting and horrible ways you could imagine. My God. He made them watch the sheriff eat jelly donuts to death. The monster. He killed six or seven, because why the fuck would the sheriff know how many people the most prolific serial killer who ever lived in his county killed? Six or seven? You don't know? Was Ed's neighbor Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy? If I was the sheriff and some dude bodied half a dozen repo men before we figured it out, I'd probably retire, or at the very least know how many it was. He then asks if she can hear their screams. He goes full-on campfire ghost story in a sunny breakfast nook with construction noises going on around him. I, I can't decide if this is the stupidest thing ever or the best thing ever. What happened to Ed, she asks. Clearly, they never caught old Ed. He escaped off into the woods. Some people say he's still around, but most think he fled to South America on account of the murders and debt and whatnot. Nope, just kidding, he got the chair, which means we are now working on the theory that Wingshauser is a fucking ghost killer. And by that I mean a ghost who kills, not someone who kills ghosts. That, that'd just be silly. She muses how terrible it is that it all happened because he sounded like such a nice man. Literally all you know about him is that his name is Ed, he was a carpenter with a bad temper, and he murdered six or seven people and got the chair. And your takeaway is, he sounds like such a nice man. Welp, I am not one for victim blaming at all, but I see why you married a man who put you in an insane asylum for having a bad day and then bought a literal whole house while you were inside and who cheats on you, what I assume is regularly. I mean, like, that's, that's your taste in men. This may be a bit too far, but... I think you're tasting men? It's kind of shit, ma'am. The sheriff even says that's a funny way to look at a psycho mass murderer before laughing, like a psycho mass murderer. Remember those two guys who got fired? Well, it's about to become a massive plot point because those two guys are talking about it while at a bar playing pool. They're going to go to the job site and steal all the big tools to set themselves up. Well, I mean, one of them is. One of them's on board with it. The other has some very basic common sense and... That pretty much tells me he's going to die extra hard. Not like fun, like die hard, but just dying extra hard. Yeah. So also, um, not like stealing a bunch of tools, then immediately opening up your own construction business. Wouldn't be a dozen red flags. It's actually enough red flags that wifey might think you're a nice little business, actually. They break open a window and proceed to shush each other while stealing tools. But it's fine. This is a horror movie, which means all sounds are localized, except when needed for plot purposes. They stuff a comically large sack full of tools, and then one decides he wants to rob the basement, and the sensible one, who isn't sensible enough to have not come along to aid in the felony, decides to stay on the ground floor. And the one who goes to rob the basement, predictably, runs into Ed, who is a very nice man. And as he walks down to the basement, he takes out a knife and scratches the wall along the way, which, if you hadn't guessed it, means Ed totally has a long cut on his arm now, because again, out of all the possible ways they could have gone with this movie, they decided Ghost House Man was the best option. Doug Taylor, you brilliant bastard. It cuts to Ed grabbing a screwdriver, and as Robber rounds a corner, he plunges the screwdriver deep into the guy's neck and or chest several times. Wait, no, sorry. They did do a cut to a close-up on Ed having a screwdriver, but since the last tool mentioned was the brand new belt sander, that's what Ed suddenly has in his hands, and he sands the man's face off. At least the guy screams, unlike the armless dipshit earlier who just leisurely allowed another man, well, ghost man, to saw his arms off without a single sound. 
Not sure if that sound is what traveled up to let sensible robber know shit was going down, but he eventually runs over to the basement to tell his friend to hurry up, and is met with Ed, who, being a nice man, says, Hey, I know you didn't really want to do any of this, but your friend is dead, and you will be too unless you run away now. It doesn't matter to me because I'm a ghost, so it's not like I can go to prison or anything. <laughs> you know I'm kidding, but you're not ready for how he gets killed. I promise you. What are you thinking? Hammer, maybe? Nail gun that he used on the rats earlier? The same belt sander he just used. No! Instead, he uses a staple gun twice to staple the man's eyes shut, which apparently renders him unable to scream, much like no arm man. And then he uses a drill in the man's throat while saying it really isn't his fault, and then he just fell in with the bad crowd. How nice of Ed to say that while drilling his throat open. Also, how nice the noise of the breaking window, screaming, belt sander, staple gun, and drill all didn't travel up the 15 to 20 feet up the stairs into the bedroom. Gotta love horror movie sound physics. Also, fun how the guy who got drilled through the throat clutches at his chest as he goes down rather than at his throat or his eyes, which have been stapled shut. Doug Taylor really knows how to write people, you, you guys. Oh, hey, wifey is waking up hearing the drilling noises. Husband isn't, though, which tracks because he's probably really tired from fucking his mistress. Also, that drilling, it's Ed. Just casually drilling into the man's stomach and chest over and over without any real purpose. Not like he's doing anything to make the body or easier to dispose. Not... Not that I would ever know how to do that. <laughs> nope, just drilling it over and over. She tells him that he should really do something about that temper, and then proceeds to flirt heavily back and forth over a corpse because, and I'm curious if we have established this, so forgive me if we have, but remember, folks, she's batshit fucking crazy. She cut up a suit, after all. It doesn't get crazier than that. And because of that, it's absolutely 100% believable that she is thirsty for a ghost murderer over a fresh corpse. Ed is going on about how doing something right means it stays right and how nobody wants to do anything right anymore. And man, I tell you what, I could not agree more. People just don't know how to do horror movies right anymore. Right, Doug? Hey, Doug. Doug, did you hear that? Your, your character said nobody does anything right anymore, Doug. Doug? I said... I said nobody does anything right anymore, Doug. Did you catch that? You like you like my Norm MacDonald impression? That, that was my Norm. I'm topical as fuck, aren't I? He's legit going off on a rant about aluminum siding, or for my British listeners, aluminium siding, and talking about how the problem is these college-educated, and he says smart-ass, and then apologizes for his language, over the corpse, and then complains that people are lazy, soft, Scared of work? Oh, shit, I'm thinking this man is about to tell everyone he's going to run for office in 2024 as the GOP candidate. Vote Ed, ghost murderer for president. He's such a nice man. To prove his point that people are soft, he drills into the corpse. Because nothing proves soft like using a power tool to plow through a corpse, I guess. I don't know. So what's the point here? Is this a poignant satire on men being quote-unquote real men and how it doesn't matter if you're a quote-unquote real man or a college-educated soft man, that at the end of the day, the important thing is you treat a woman like shit. Has Ed treated a woman like shit yet? Well, not in the same way as the other men in the movie. He hasn't put her in an asylum or made financial life decisions without her, cheated on her, tried to sexually assault her. And I'm going to toss in the word yet here because it feels appropriate. But you haven't been hearing his tone. He's been talking down to her and has no compunctions about murdering in front of her as long as she doesn't question him and backs him up. He's all for her being around. Just wait, dear viewer. Er, listen. Just wait. He's about to get shitty. This movie only has about 20 or 30 minutes left. He's gonna get real shitty real soon. Guarantee it. Which we could then argue was Doug Taylor expertly writing realistic men who believe they're being kind to women, not actually being kind to women, but we all know he's just gonna need a climax and a new conflict in the third act, and that's the driving force, which, A, fair, this is 80s horror schlock, but if I didn't sit here and pick it apart and condemn it and mock it, what would you be doing right now? Something productive, maybe, learning a second language, picking up a new skill, perhaps, or maybe, just maybe, right now without me, you'd be putting your wife in an insane asylum because she used scissors. So you're welcome, women. You're welcome. Without me, you'd be being put in an insane asylum right now. Anyways, Ed invites her to go walking around the woods when he's not so busy, you know, murdering people. The flirting continues, and she goes back to bed. 
Husband is berating the foreman and saying things should be done quicker now that it's a tighter crew, which makes no sense because fewer people automatically means it'll take longer. The foreman tells him this, and the husband goes in to take a phone call while wearing a shirt that can only be described by me asking you the following question. Have you ever wanted a shirt that wasn't long-sleeved or short-sleeved, but instead split the difference? If so, you need to watch this movie for his shirt in this scene. The phone call is clearly his mistress, but we're being dragged through some very clunky one-sided dialogue while wife listens. But she leaves the room, which means she's clearly out of earshot because, again, horror movie sound physics. And the literal second she is out of the room, still visible in the doorway, and the door stays open, he starts talking about how she shouldn't call him there, and he's very angry because he already made enough concessions for her. I mean, ladies, please be reasonable. Stop angering the married men you're having affairs with. Clearly, they already have enough on their plate without having to talk to you on the phone while they're spending time with their wives, who they've committed to mental institutions for cutting up one of their suits. Just be reasonable, for Christ's sake! Gosh! We follow the wife into multiple other rooms while still clearly hearing the husband saying damning things like, Well, I've got a wife! And you might not care, but I do. But wifey either doesn't hear because of the aforementioned physics or doesn't care because of the aforementioned insanity. And hubby is meeting the mistress in a hotel now. Clearly, he has proven how cross he was with her for calling him at home and is showing it by trying to hump her for the first second they're both on screen together. That'll show her! She wants to talk first, and in the sexiest thing ever said category, I would like to submit his response. Well, not too serious, I hope. I'm feeling a bit of the piss and vinegar right now. Take note, men. This is how you talk to your mistress while your insane wife keeps house for a ghost murderer. In a shocking turn that not a single one of us could have ever anticipated, a master twist constructed by genius Doug Taylor, (gasps) she's pregnant. Done, done, done. And back to the wife who starts screaming and showing more emotion than anyone has this entire movie because her sister pulled up to the house. Her sister, everyone! And at dinner, the husband isn't dominating the conversation, so he's being a little baby man about it, which is weird considering he has had zero conversations with his wife for the majority of the movie. So maybe, maybe he's just mad that anyone is talking. And the sister takes favorite character status because she literally just ignores every interjection he makes. Which means, of course, she's gonna die because there's no way in hell this movie could let us enjoy anything for very long. Right up until he complains that girl talk is music, and then, instead of ignoring him, she tells him to go to hell. Oh boy, I bet Martin will take that very well, reassess his life, and become a kinder, more gentler man. This is when I wink at the camera. Wink. Oh no, but if her sister is visiting, can she still spend time with Ed? You'd think maybe we're about to find out as we see Hubby walking down the stairs to find wife painting. So he can hear her painting. This is this is after the dinner, this is way later at night. He can hear her painting, but not the broken window, the staple gun, the drill, the belt sander, and the screaming in conversation. Physics! Also, wait a minute! This just hit me! I don't even have this written in the script! This just now hit me! They never mentioned the broken window! You're telling me that they never noticed a broken fucking window on the first floor when the windows were already- You know what? I'm just- I'm- I'm overanalyzing it. We're gonna keep going. I think the amazing thing, though, is she's painting by candlelight instead of just having the light on. That's- that's impressive. He nicely offers to get her a glass of milk, which means he's, of course, going to drug her drink with the tranquilizers he got on him instead of just being an even remotely supportive husband. Not kidding. He literally drugs his wife's milk to make her go to sleep at 4 a.m., even though she basically has no responsibilities, is being productive and having fun. Also, clearly, Doug Taylor has never had to mix pills and liquid of any kind before because he grinds up two pills with a spoon half-acidly and then stirs them in milk. There is zero chance someone drinks that and doesn't immediately go, Oh, this milk is spoiled! Though he does taste it first before giving it to her, and he doesn't gag or anything else, which shows that this man has no taste buds. And in a twist, she also has no taste buds because she also doesn't notice two poorly ground up pills and milk. In fact, she takes a sip and then instantly chugs a lot of it because it tasted so good! Well... She has no taste, so now we know why she married him. Say it with me. Because she's insane! Right, good good job, everyone. 
cut to her waking up in bed, hearing music, and slow motion putting on a nightgown, but not, like, good slow motion. The kind of slow motion where you wonder if they slowed it down or just had them, like, walk really slow and use shitty photography so you couldn't tell. Which all clearly tells us that she's dreaming. And the music is Ed in a nice, shiny, white suit, and he wants to dance with her and have some wine. And men say they can't understand women. I don't know what's not to understand, guys. Just play some nice music, have some wine, murder people in front of her while giving folksy wisdom about work, and how soft men are today. That's all it takes. And as they dance, he tells her that she deserves so much better than that guy, and that she just needs to think about just him and her and the house, because marrying a ghost murderer to live in his house is... I, I, I mean, actually, as a millennial, that, that sounds like a pretty solid fucking plan. He's promising her new house, not having to deal with anyone else, Willing to kill for her, a yard with woods and a brand new well that he's going to make, along with a bucket. You know what? I'm actually starting to come around to marrying a ghost murderer. Oh, and he unzips his pants and we hear her screaming and drill noises in the background and she wakes up and starts trying to wake up her husband by literally hitting him. Like, full on punching him in the back and the ass as hard as she can and he doesn't even move. You know how much of a shitty husband you gotta be to be literally being beaten up by your wife and be like, I wonder if she wants to talk. Meh, I'll just lay here. And we open the next morning on his unbruised back, which goes to show that either horror movie physics are still taking place, or she hits about as hard as a leaf slamming gently onto a summer pond. And we learn to love him even more as he says to his wife's sister that they could have been happy together if she had just played her cards right. Sorry, why does this guy think that he's the best man in the world? He's literally looking into a mirror right now as I'm writing this. He has to know he's not a catch, right? And cut to sister and wife talking about how she knows that he's having an affair. She tells her sister that hubby isn't the only one with someone else and starts trying to talk about how Ed is a carpenter who comes to see her at night and he works and they talk and he does things around the house and he fixes things and he takes care of her problems and that makes her feel good. And, and they were talking in a dream last night, making plans. And, and sister would really like him. And did we mention that this woman is insane? I'm only hitting you over the head with this like they're hitting me over the head with it, folks. Much like that chandelier has not hit anybody over the head yet because it still hasn't fallen. I'm upset by that. And instead of following up any of that with any other questions about her mentally ill and clearly emotionally abused sister's brand new paramour, questions like, so what's his name? Or, is he real because you just said you talked to him in a dream? Or, where'd you meet him if he isn't one of the carpenters from the job? Or, you know, literally anything else. She just instead says, that's really good, I'm glad, I'm happy for you, but quickly moves back to doing something about the very real husband affair. See, now if this movie wanted to go full twist, it could eventually come out that Ed is not real and has been a delusion while she killed those guys and that her sister knows how crazy she is and is setting her up to kill her husband's mistress so they could put her in jail and then she can finally have a shot at hubby. It would be... A real twist, because no one would want to go through any of that to stay with this man. But still, Doug Taylor, I think you missed a real opportunity here to do something even crazier than the movie you ended up doing. Speaking of the mistress, they've just finished up and we cut to a different scene almost immediately. I, like, I just got whiplash right there. This is how you people know how much I care, alright? The scene we just cut from, the mistress that was only, like, the, 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 it was one sentence that I just did. Yeah. So, somehow, it felt like it dragged on for years. So I timed it. It lasted exactly 32 seconds. And the scene we cut to is Wifey staring at a paint can mixer, mixing paint, because remember, she got a job at that paint store. Well, it's paying off right now. Fuck the chandelier. This was Chekhov's paint store all along. Clearly, it's paying off right now. So she's just staring at it, and the sound of it stays as we cut to Hubby talking with the insane asylum doctor, and then back to her just staring at the paint mixer, zoom in hard on the paint mixer, back to hubby and insane doctor, back to her staring at the paint mixer, which starts shooting out blood all over her. Oh wait, it's probably just red paint, but it's red paint like blood! Woo! Back to the doctor and the hubby laughing. Paint mixer is still mixing. She's just letting it cover her completely. Back to doctor laughing. Well, that whole montage was 46 seconds exactly. And both of those scenes felt like they were minutes long at the very least. And honestly, it felt more like bordering on decades. But in all fairness, that could be the weed. I mean, nothing, but this is how you know I care. Because I had to sit there and time that to just try to figure out how ridiculous this movie is so that I could accurately explain to you how ridiculous it is and had to, had to boil it all down to just, like, it's, it sucks. It really sucks. 
Yeah. This is how you know I care about you people, because... I'm putting myself through this right now. Anyways, and her walking home covered in paint with groceries to find Mistress on the front porch. Are we about to get a girls coming together to support each other moment? Is the Mistress going to be like, hey, actually, I'm going to sue your husband and the university for sleeping with me because I'm a student and I'm about to get paid, but you don't deserve this BS, so I wanted to talk with you first about it all and give you the heads up that your husband is a cheating sack of crap. Probably not. Some bullshit pleasantries about the weather that are a lie. It's it's weird, don't ask. And then, boom, I'm pregnant with Martin's child. Like, whole foot inside the door right there. And she doesn't care. She says, well, you can take Martin. And then the mistress says, well, why don't you give him up? I, I mean, bitch, it sounds like she just did. But, uh, okay, I guess we can't have anything nice happen. I, a crazy lady's gonna crazy. And, yep, she does. She goes crazy. She starts going off about how clean the house is and having this filth in the house and forcing her out of the house and then picks up a nail gun on the front porch and Ed, who wasn't there a moment ago, helps her out, fixes her stance, and somehow the nail gun shoots giant holes through the mistress's torso. Call me crazy, but I'm pretty sure nail guns shoot, and bear with me, nails. I'm not saying she would have lived, but you don't you don't need to put those tiny explosives on her. That like that's that was in the budget. You could have you could have done that with a like, her falling forward and have a few fake nails sticking out of the back. Could have saved a few bucks there, Doug Taylor. I mean, that's not fair. Doug was... Doug was the writer, not the director or the FX person. Wait, was he? Hold on, let me check. Nope, just check. Doug is... is clear on this one. Unless... he wrote something about the nail gun causing bullet holes. Then he's still on the hook for it. Anyway, Ed makes the same quip about how he'd prefer to use a hammer, but it tears the hell out of the rats. Wow! A callback?! Only great writers make callbacks, Doug. Hey, kids, that chandelier still isn't in play. And then Hubby pulls up and sees the mistress's car, along with a giant pool of blood and a literal river of it trailing back into the house with nails in the blood, meaning somehow they shot her with the nail gun and it went through her like bullets, and then they went and got those nails or other nails and threw them in the blood trail in an attempt to make the most obvious murder scene ever happen? I don't know. Anyways, hu husband hubby casually walks in, doesn't even really run, to see dead mistress on the couch. And wifey goes in the kind of rant that only a man thinks a woman will have in a situation like this. Like, I have heard women go on these kind of rants about, about a man before, and it doesn't sound like this at all. So I'm gonna spare you, but remember folks, she's crazy. And then he slaps her twice with all the force of a 60-year-old woman being very upset that her tea time is being ruined by a knock at the door saying, oh shoot, and slapping her own thigh in frustration. But thankfully, Ed walks in before tossing out some shit that would sound better in a deep cut here. Joe Don Baker movie with the line, Mr. That is a lady you're slapping around. And then fairly predictably pins him to the floor with a screwdriver through each hand. Which, much like having your arms sawed off, causes zero screaming. He does finally start to scream a moment later, though, but is thankfully gagged. The problem is, that means that Wings has to monologue now about how smart guys like you never learn to shut up. And the whole movie feels like a high schooler wrote it and was trying to be edgy when doing so, you know? And he's crushing his head in a vice along with more monologuing about how big their brains are and how if they had to use their hands they wouldn't make it far and they gotta use legal fees and lawyers to do their dirty work and hey Ed, look man, you're preaching to the choir but we all know you only feel this way because of all the problems you had to deal with after you murdered six or seven repo men. You're not a speaker for the proletariat, Ed. You're just a murderer and a lame one at that. And Wifey has taken a shower now, presumably because we haven't had a single gratuitous nude scene even once. So we'll see if this movie sinks even lower. And cut to her fully clothed in bed, drying her hair. I did not expect that. Well done, movie. And now that it's nighttime, Sister shows up, and we hear a dog barking several times in the background, even though we've never heard a dog barking before. There was the howling earlier, but, you know, that, that wasn't a dog barking. And, uh, you know... I think this was a mistake on the film's part because I'm now more invested in that dog that doesn't exist than the plot of this movie, which is about a crazy lady wanting to fuck a ghost murderer, and not a single word of that was a lie. And she walks into the house and is greeted by the two corpses. So wait. Ed cleaned up literally every other murder so well that nobody noticed, even though there were dozens and dozens of people in and out to see the signs of murder, except these two. Okay. Fine. 
At least Sister has a reasonable reaction and freaks the fuck out and finds her sister while asking what happened and is trying to snap her out of it so they can get help. Like, Sister is by far the best character written by Doug Taylor up to this point. She tries to get her sister up so they can leave, but Ed interrupts and gives in an attempt to be malicious but comes across as a I'm doing this the right way sort of speech about how there's no trouble unless someone makes trouble. Like, hey, just ignore the fact that you know your sister and her affair murdered her husband and his mistress and that that murderer also wants you to leave your sister alone with him forever. He takes wifey away and sister goes after him with a shove so he reacts quite serenely by choke slamming her into a wall which causes wifey to finally wise up a bit. And by a bit, I mean she literally just all of a sudden is like, oh hey wait a second, you're... You're, you're like that guy that you just killed, but different, but you're basically the same. And he seems very hurt by that and says he was real special. So, oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. He's just a nice guy, but instead of a nerdy nice guy, he's a jock nice guy. Okay, well, shit. Now, now that I realize that's what this is, I feel like I should go back and rewatch the whole movie as it was intended. He's giving real pity-me vibes instead of sexual predator vibes. So that's that's nice, at least, though, which is it's a really sad thing to have to applaud. Uh, she also seems to have figured out completely, without explanation, that hurting the house hurts him and is hammering it as she runs away. Literally only mentioned once in the movie by someone who she didn't talk to and, and didn't witness. So, I mean, good for her, I guess, for figuring that out. She then immediately forgets this, though, and hits him in the head, which does nothing. He chases her into the basement where they first met, you know, with the rat. Uh, and she defends herself with a 2 by 4 while he monologues more. He tried, audience. He really did. But hey, enough is enough. The courting is done. Oh, shit. Wait a minute. Did I congratulate the movie too soon? Yep. He's only got one thing on his mind, and the dialogue, again, is just, it's bad. You guys, it's bad dialogue. It's just not, it's not good. I got no constructive criticism over here. I'm aware of my limitations. I can't do anything with this, so you're just gonna have to trust me when I say, it's bad, I got no clever riffs on it. And Sister shows up, and as he goes after her, Wifey says, not him, the house! And for some reason, Sister believes her and goes after the house, which hurts him. In what is clearly supposed to feel like a aha, the women are triumphing moment, we are left exactly with that feeling. But not as the writer intended, unless Doug Taylor is a genius, and he very well may be. Because instead of seeing two well-rounded women characters triumph against adversity, we see two actresses playing stilted borderline satire characters, but on the wrong side of it, getting into getting to physically destroy the set of a piece of work that wrote them as such. Getting to literally destroy the method of their own oppression. The only thing more on the nose would have been them burning the scripts themselves, which they almost did because they set the whole fucking set on fire. We get to witness these women just fuck up this set for almost two and a half minutes. The last two and a half minutes. It, it, the last two and a half minutes of this movie is literally just them breaking the house down and setting it on fire and watching Wingshauser chase and crawl after them while also on fire while screaming for the wife. So, was it really Ed or was it the house? The wife mentioned she might have been fired at some point. Did she get to keep her job at the paint store after that mixer incident and double homicide? Speaking of, did Ed's body disappear or will the authorities find the on-fire fresh corpse of a man the state electrocuted to death years ago? Also, why the fuck did nothing happen with the chandelier? Who knows? Because that's it. That's the end of The Carpenter. Holy God, I picked a terrible movie to come back to, didn't I? I mean, that's kind of my thing, so yay for consistency. Speaking of, I'd like to thank the person who made this episode of Horror 4H and most of the episodes of Horror 4H possible uh, by not only uh, giving me emotional support, but financial support. And uh, they are also the reason that you can currently listen to all of the episodes of Horror 4H instead of just a couple at a time. Uh, so, Brian, thank you. It is very deeply appreciated. It takes not a lot but some money to make sure you have full access to all episodes of Horror 4H at all times. And Brian has helped to ensure we can do that for at least one more year. And speaking of, again, if you want to show your support for the insane little bits that I do here, if I made you laugh or smile, even once, if you don't regret spending however long this episode was with me, I have a request, and then everything else beyond that is gravy. If you like this, share it. Or share another episode you like, just with one person. And it doesn't have to be a big grand share. Slip it between the dozen or so TikToks you send your friends. 
If you want to go above but not beyond, then shoot me an email at horror4h at gmail.com. That is the word horror, the number four, the letter H, all together one word, at gmail.com. And, and let me know what you thought. What jokes you liked, what jokes you didn't like, what, what little bits that I do that you think are fun. Uh, any movies you think that I could riff on that you would love to hear me just talk shit about. You know, anything like that. That'd be great. And if you really want to go above and beyond, then head on over to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Horror4H. You can find me there, and the standard tier for helping me out is just a buck a month. That's not even a cup of coffee, which is fine, because I don't actually drink coffee. So if you want to give even more than that, it'd be appreciated. You don't have to. But if a dozen of you do the dollar a month, that is another full year of Horror4H being fully available at all times on demand. So, you know, that might be enough. That That's enough of my social media plugging and begging, though. Uh, I will say that, honestly, just that feedback of someone saying they laughed or they enjoyed it or they had a good time, that's enough. That's the reason I'm back doing this episode. I'd like to say thank you to my friend Happy uh, because they mentioned uh, I, got, I got to share an episode of Horror 4H with them and uh, they liked it. They thought it was funny, and they told me so, and that, that made me want to do it again. Literally, that's all it takes to get me to do these. It's just people saying, hey, I like that. Can you do more? That's all it takes. So I'm glad I did, because this was a blast. And let's hope the motivation continues, and I can get another episode out next month as well. Until then, take care, everyone.